What's going on, guys? AJ here, back again with another episode of the E1B2 podcast. I had the great honor and the privilege to bring on Adam Rosen. And Adam, I really hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Probably should have asked, but I'm assuming that it is. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Adam uh, was an amazing, is an amazing entrepreneur. He uh, founded a brand a few years ago, uh, had a great exit with that brand, has a, a lot of fundamental perspectives around how to build a startup, how to observe a startup, how to look at the landscape of building a startup, how to navigate the treacherous waters of the inevitable uh, path of building a startup. And he was able to provide so many fundamental perspectives and insights on today's podcast. I wanted to switch it up, guys. I've I've been talking a lot about this. I want to start bringing on startup founders, leaders, angel investors, advisors, anyone that is in this landscape. I've wanted to bring on these individuals and talk about the world of startups, talk about fundamental best practices and principles that every single startup needs to unpack and listen to. I also asked a few selfish questions around the way that I'm looking at the world of startups through the through the lens of employee experience, through the lens of building out people operations. So it was a very interesting conversation, very thorough conversation, and I am very grateful that I was able to have it with Adam today. So please enjoy this episode. If you are a startup founder, uh, if you are someone that is looking to start up to start a startup, and if you're someone that is in the people operations kind of department of a startup, inevitably, there's a lot of great information, a lot of great thoughts for you guys to uncover. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for all those that have been listening to the E1B2 podcast over the 240 plus episodes. I uh, thank everyone and uh, enjoy today's show. already recording right now uh that's kind of how it works and so um i i do appreciate you making the decision to uh to join this podcast here as i did tell you before um i was making a very much a, a concerted effort to try to change up the the type of content that i bring to this podcast for two reasons honestly number one you know Anchor does a great job of showing you the analytics and showing you the types of individuals that actually consume the content. And so I was starting to notice, and probably due to my LinkedIn following and my background, that I that a lot of the listenership were founders, were, um, you know, executives within startups, were, you know, um, very entrepreneurial type folks. And then obviously there was a huge population of like, you know, your VP of peoples and your HR leaders and things of that nature. But you know, with this pivot that everyone that listens to this podcast knows about um, from just being a podcast and me being an employee six months ago um, with this pivot of this new company, I, you know, I've decided to, to put a little bit more of a focus on bringing individuals like you that have a wealth of experience within, within the startup world. And so um, I, I just I, I can't thank you guys enough, you personally, as well as everyone else that I have kind of booked um i'm excited to learn from you guys and please uh i'll shut up now and, and tell everyone uh who you actually are and a little bit about you and and uh maybe just one interesting thing that not too many people know about you even your roommates that just left your uh your house there <laughs> now thanks for having me anthony i'm excited to uh to be on the podcast with you and uh it, it was great when you one of the things that made this podcast even happen just a little fun fact. I didn't know Anthony six weeks ago and we all get tons and tons of outreach on LinkedIn. And, you know, most of which I'll either accept or just ignore based on what they say. And if I think they're just going to sell me instantly and what made 
this conversation even happened was because Anthony's outreach and your outreach was so unique. Like it was, it felt very personalized. It felt very authentic. It felt very real. And so I accepted it. I, you know, gave you a shout out. I said, Hey, thanks, Anthony. I, I appreciate your genuine outreach. We hopped on a phone call. You told me a little bit more about what you're up to, which I think is very interesting. And then you invited me on the podcast podcast. So, uh, this only happened because of something that you did that was very genuine and sincere in outreach where people do it all the time on LinkedIn. But I think you did it a little extra special. So I want to put that tidbit in the, in the beginning and just a little bit of background on me. So I, I graduated college back in 2013 undergrad. I did a one year MBA in 2014. And the reason why that's relevant is because I was a sport management undergrad always thought I worked for professional sports teams. I did a couple internships with sports teams, hated it. I saw that there was no way I was gonna be able to get to where I wanted to go because I didn't enjoy the grind of that world as I thought I might. My junior year, I took an entrepreneurship class. I ended up running and starting an entrepreneur program at my college. And I got invited to do a one year MBA to continue working on that program. I started my company about three weeks before graduating from that MBA, the whole, the whole business was based around connecting uh, college students who had these great admirations and great ambitions to companies and opportunities that, uh, you know, were their dream opportunities, right? So did that. A year later, we raised money. We started what ended up being our second company. And we did that company for about four years. It was a software platform built around student organizations. Uh, we were acquired about a year ago now, and after being acquired, I moved out to Hawaii. I spent a year out there. I spent most of my time just figuring out what's next. I stumbled around a land development opportunity. I moved to upstate New York, and uh, right now I'm mainly working as a land developer, buying and selling land, as well as advising and investing into different startups. Um, so that's the quick 90-second overview of, uh, of me. I always, uh, I always forget that I think our ages are identical. How old are you again? I'm 29. Exactly. So we're literally, what month were you born? April, April 20th, 1991. Got it. So, so if anyone there. wants to send me a birthday present, I'm always accepting. There it is. There it is. <laughs> uh, and I actually, I'm actually odd that way. I'll do things like that. So, um, I'll have to figure out what your favorite wine is. Or if you are a watch guy, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big watch guy. I'm looking at my my brand new citizens watch here. So, um, but anyway, uh, I have ADD guys, if you guys, people on the podcast know. So, um, that's interesting. So 29, uh, incredible, uh, background from what you did and how fast you, you did it. Um, very similar to you, you know, uh, and I think I told you about this. I kind of started a couple brands early in my career as well. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting path. Um, is there anything interesting, that uh, that even your roommates or your mom or like deep friends, uh, significant others don't know about you that you kind of want to maybe share with us. So I'm a pretty open guy. So a lot of which people might have an idea on, but one thing that's pretty unique that only uh, maybe a handful of people know is I'm a big geek when it comes to journaling. So, and, and this was really founded from my business partner um, who's become a brother of mine. So there was a time we had five co-founders in my last company. I ended with one other co-founder. Um, so that's another story. But 
Uh, and he's someone who I admire and look up to in a lot of ways. And he really got me on this kick of the whole thing is like, so we go through our days every day and we don't necessarily track what's important. And the whole thing is, okay, how do I create accountability to the things that I want to be doing more of? So I have basically just a Google sheet. So a spreadsheet where every morning I will keep track of what are the big things I want to accomplish throughout that day. And then at the, at the end of the day, I have a list of things that I hold myself accountable to. And I just simply say, yes, I did this or no, I didn't do this. And then I, you know, talk about what I loved about what I did that day. I learned what I learned, uh, what I can improve on and so on and so forth. So um, I, I have this basically a Google sheet journal that I've been keeping for about the last year and a half now that uh, most people don't know about, but it's been so critical to my growth and my understanding of myself and where I'm going. I think that's so valuable. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of value there. And you kind of said at the very end, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that say, you know, self-awareness is important, but then they, they typically don't give you any tactics or actual practical uh, best practices of how to get to that self-awareness. And that, that actually is a interesting way to go about that. Um, is there anything that has uh, that you've learned about yourself that maybe you, you didn't know or anything or any new habits that you started to develop? Cause I'm sure if you were to pull that up, maybe even now, I'm sure you would be able to look over the last, let's call it six months. You, I'm sure there are trends and certain things that you see now. Absolutely. And that's, that's the whole point, right? And that's a good question you ask. Cause you know, what I'll see is there's typically a direct correlation as to like how much I write during the day. So like, there's a section where I say, I love this about what I did today. And that, just for, that could be referenced as to like, I held the door for a nice old lady as she was walking through the door and, you know, yeah. I smiled at her. It could be something as silly as that. Um, so th there's a direct correlation typically with how much I write about how much I love the day versus when I'm actually in the nitty gritty quantifying the day as to, yes, I did this or no, I didn't do this. The rating that I have for myself that the number spits out, there's typically a correlation with that. Um, and what I found is that typically when I'm doing little things like that throughout the day, it leads to other areas that are important to me, like bravery, like, you know, acting out of love and, you know, giving and working out. And did I do a certain amount of push-ups or did I do cardio? Like all those things are interconnected in small ways that lead me to having more productive days or less productive days. That's fair. That's really interesting. I'm going to steal that um, if I can, because I think, I think there's a lot of things, you know, and honestly, I'll share a little story with, with the listeners and, and you, and then we'll hop right in. Um, I, uh, I need to probably do something like this because I've, there's been a shift, you know, um, and I think I told you this when we first met uh, or first spoke rather, we haven't really met yet actually, but um, uh, about, yeah, about seven months ago now, six months ago, I don't even know actually, whenever COVID started, I, I know for me, it was March 1st when I actually shut down. And I know mm -hmm. for some, it was a little bit later, some a little, little bit earlier, but um, I was an employee. You know, I say that every day of the week, you know, I had a few ideas of my next move, but I was very much an employee. And to some degree, I was enjoying that process from a stress level perspective. Though I did have a lot of stress, a lot of pressure because I, I was I was I was an executive with the next startup. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it was not my startup. And so I don't know, there's definitely been a lot of um and you can empathize with this, I'm sure, there's definitely been a, a, a shift within me from a stress level, an anxiety level, um, an urgency level, uh, 
now that I'm back in that startup entrepreneurial mm-hmm. seat, uh, that is interesting that I need to continue to unpack. I pray a lot. I talk to mm-hmm. myself a lot, but I think I need to maybe steal what you're doing to try to just unpack myself a little bit more to see what shifts I'm making because of that. Absolutely, man. Like, so first of all, my, my business partner, he's building a technology behind it. So I'm going to make sure that you guys get connected so you can be part of that, uh, that, that beta group for it. But um, the big thing that I found to your exact point is like being an entrepreneur is so damn lonely where a lot of times it makes it difficult to share the shit that's going on. You can't really share it with your employees because you don't want to worry them. You don't really want to share it with your parents or your family because you don't want to worry them. You don't, it's tough to have friends that are in that situation that you can bounce ideas off of. So it could be a really lonely place when you're starting a business. And one of the things that I found to be helpful with, you know, the sheet, journaling, meditating, praying, whatever it is that works for you. But it allows you to almost create like a community, even if it's just you, but a community in a space where you can vent and think things out and realize like, hey, it's not as bad as I think it is. It's a good stress reliever and it allows you to see the big picture. And it also allows you to see from a micro standpoint, okay, here's how I'm growing each and every day, even if it doesn't feel like I am. That's super fair. That's really fair. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm making it a, a commitment now. Um, so let's, let's hop in a bit here. So that's your background. I think we just did a, a lot of good for not only ourselves, but the world. I think there's a lot of gems that we just unpacked there. Um, something we have in similar, uh, having similar, something, something that we have uh, uh, an like interest around or something that we both are kind of, I think, appreciate are scaling businesses with no money um, and with very little connections. Um, I, have done that. I'm going for my third time now doing that. Uh, I did it twice before. Now, let me preface this with, you know, both companies were in the very low seven figures and and, and mid-level six figure range Uh, to the startup world. You guys would probably say that it's incredibly not impressive, but from my very humble beginnings of, uh, of Baltimore here, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, But, uh, but both again, no money, no, uh, I, and actually, not only no personal money, but I've never built a business model where I could have had anyone invest. So I, I think it's a very interesting model. Um, with, with you personally, though, when you sent over that topic, what was going through your head around scaling a business with no money, no team, no connections? What do you mean by that? What, what were you seeing? Have you experienced that? I, I know that you did get some outside funding, but what, what did it look like when you were Again, coming up with that topic, maybe personally experiencing that. What are your macro thoughts around doing something like that? Yeah, I think about the naivety, if I pronounce that correctly, of when I was graduating from my MBA and we wanted to start our company. And I've always had unrealistic expectation, at least in your first start. I was like billionaire or bust. I want to go IPO, like anything less than that is blah. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. And it's just like, you realize how much of a pup you are now looking back on it. And when we started, like I, I never worked for a company before we didn't have any, in that first year, we had no money. One of my partners, he was the one who ended up funding the business, but it wasn't much money that we were able to put into it. We knew nobody in the industry. We had nobody that could build the technology that we ended up building a year later. Like we knew nothing about it. And 
you know, when, when I say we were acquired, I want to say this, and I probably should have said in the beginning, like we did not have some big sexy exit by any stretch. It was more about like, hey, we did this for five years. We took it as far as we could take it. Um, it's time to move on and put the business in a better set of hands that can take it to a level that we couldn't take it. And it's time to move on and see what's next in our life. So I, I want to, I don't want your listeners to think like we had this big, massive exit and I'm, you know, massively wealthy from it. We got our asses kicked every single day out of those five years, but it was the greatest fucking learning that I ever could have had in my entire life. So I want to make sure I'm totally upfront with that. I don't want anyone to have any misconceptions about it. So the reason why I brought that topic up is I think it's how a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs end up starting is they might not have any money, they might not have any team, they might not have any connection, they might not have any experience, whatever. And the reason why I bring that up is because if you just focus on one thing, and I'm going to hammer this home all day, every day, when you're building a business, when you're focusing on getting sales, you have to focus on how do I get the product market fit? And if that's your sole focus, if that's your sole focus, you can get there without the money, without the team, without the connections. And then once you get to that product market fit, everything from there will grow off of it. But if I were to start my business all over again, that would have been my only focus is what the hell does this market I'm looking to serve? What do they need? And how do I build a product that they can't get enough of? What are other things that people focus on? Because I have some thoughts, but I want to hold them off my, my own personal thoughts. What are other things that people focus on that you find distract them from that sole focus? the sexiness of like, I just want to raise as much money as possible, or mm -hmm. I want to build every single feature that I think is cool. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I want to find my 20th customer before I find my first happy customer, or I want to find my thousandth user before I get one user that won't log off my platform because I love it because they love it so much. Those are some of the distractions that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have and that I had personally. You know, we get tricked into thinking the game and running a startup, especially a tech startup is who can raise the most money. And that's all bullshit. Or it's how can I get my 10,000th user versus like, how do I just get one user who just will never log, log off my damn platform? Um, so those are some of the big missteps that a lot of entrepreneurs I see make and that I made. So, so I'm advising a company right now. Uh, I only advise, you know, one thing about me, I'm very honest and aware of my skills and my background. And so when I say I'm advising a startup, my background and expertise are around a couple of things. I think the mindset uh, around of an entrepreneur is one that definitely needs to be, I think there needs to be more advisors around there that literally just support mm -hmm. founders from, an, from a mindset perspective. I think there's a lot of mental frameworks that advisors can help with. So I do that. Uh, I advise around strategic partnerships. The only reason I've been able to build companies is through partnerships. I've built 14 now strategic partnerships where I, I now have a team. Like It's just the way that I do it. I, I, I honestly don't know how to build a company any other way than to make strategic collaborations and partnerships. And then the other thing is around obviously employee experience and things of that nature and putting teams putting teams and people together. And, and so 
Uh, one aspect, though, around advising that I've been 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 having a struggle with, and I want to get your take on this, and it, and it's all connected to this macro topic of of scaling with no money, no connections, no team, things of that nature. Um, do you find that startup founders are so fascinated by the the world of raising money that driving Uber or doing DoorDash or or eBay hustling or having a restaurant job post uh pre you know pre-covid or 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 having a part-time job and working 18 hour a day like like do you find that the regular life because everything i just said is like regular everyday life like the 99 percent of human beings that are walking the earth today Mm -hmm. do those things between the ages of 18 and 25 as they're trying to gather their footing they have a corporate job they do doordash they do uber they do a whatever they got to do to make money. Do you believe that doing those things to make sure the base amount of money that you need to be able to live uh, is a good idea rather than focusing just on raising capital and, and crying and complaining about how you can't raise capital. And then you still have piling up bills. Thus you're, you have anxiety. Like these are real things that I'm actually experiencing with a couple companies I'm advising. Mm -hmm. I've been telling them, go, Go get a part-time job. Go do DoorDash. I will teach you how to. I made $3,000 a month for six months in a row after I got obsessed with Gary Vaynerchuk three years ago on eBay. Mm-hmm. Like, go. There are other ways to do it because once you get your day-to-day bills taken care of, your anxiety levels will be at a very minimal level. How do you feel when I say those things? How do you think startup founders internalize that 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 those insights? Um from your, from your perspective? I think it's a great point. So probably my favorite quote, I used to have it written on my office back in the pre-COVID days, you know, when I had my startup and it's perseverance and spirit have done wonders in all ages. Um, and George Washington said it. And the reason why I bring that up based on what you're saying is all you're saying basically is, does this founder have grit and they have the toughness and can they persevere? And if they ain't willing to do those things, if they're not willing to get dirty, if they're not willing to make shit happen to move their business to the next level, then it's painful to hear, but they're probably not going to be able to run a successful startup because if you you need money and you're struggling to raise money, that means either A, you don't have a business that's worthy of raising money or B, you're not doing it right. But if you're not able to raise money, then you got to find other ways to make money and to hustle and to be scrappy if that business is so important to you. And if it's not that important to you, that's okay. But you're probably just not meant to start a business. I think it's as simple as that. Um, And I think you bring up a great point. Like there's other if you need to raise twenty five thousand dollars or five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, there's ways to find that money and to make that work. And the truth is, like unless you really, really, really need to raise money, unless you have this massive opportunity that you need to raise, you know, several million dollars for not raising money can be a hell of a lot better. Everyone thinks raising money is all sexy and awesome until you do it. And then you realize the many handcuffs that can come with raising money. What are the reasons to raise money? So, and, 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 and again, I'll pros this again, guys, you know, I'm in the startup world, but I look at a startup meaning you start a company 
like you start a company like but most people consider startup world as tech and product and things of that nature so again i don't come from a background of raising capital so i'm honestly asking from like 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 what are i have a couple ideas obviously i'm somewhat educated like you raise money because you want to like get to market faster thus you're dumping dollars into a team that you need because you don't personally have the expertise. There are certain maybe tangible things you need, like product that you actually need, or maybe there's things you need to buy that you just like, or, or, or you believe you need to double and triple down on the amount of hours you work. And so, and so you want to raise money to supplement the income of your bills. Like from your perspective, why do companies need to raise money? Cause I can come up with a bunch of reasons why you don't. But but why do you think a lot of startup founders think you need to? Well, I think if you need to raise money, you need to raise money, right? Like if you need, let's say you're starting and and you're building a product that you're going to sell on Amazon or Shopify Uh and inventory is going to cost you $40,000, like, and you don't have $40,000, but you have good demand for it. Maybe you need to raise money. Like if you're, if you're building out this massive opportunity that you see, and you're going to need several million dollars to build out the infrastructure for it and to get inventory for it and to hire a team for it, then, you know, you need to raise money for it. I think too many people resort to raising money and they either think that it's like the cool, sexy thing that they, that they want to do, or they think that it's something that they need to do when they start a business. Um, but they don't actually need to. And I think it's just really figuring out like, okay, how much capital do I need to get to this next checkpoint? One of the, one of, one of my, uh, um, you know, I'd call him a mentor. He is a VC and he really helped me in my early days where he would just kick my ass. I would go and meet with him more as just like a mentor where I would just ask him a bunch of questions, let him know where we're at. And he would just beat the crap out of me uh, mentally, not physically. Don't worry guys. <laughs> uh, and one of the things he said is like, Adam, raising money is not a means to an end. It's just a way to get to another checkpoint. And like, raise X amount of dollars to get you to, let's say $100,000 of sales. And then let's say you raise another amount of money to get you from a, you know, a 7% churn to a 1% churn. And then you raise your next amount of money to get you from, you know, 600K of ARR to 3.5K, $3.5 million of ARR. Like it should all just be a checkpoint that gets you to something greater that will help you do something bigger. But don't just raise money for the hell of it. Be intentional, right? Exactly, exactly. Got it. What did you mean by sale is king and queen? What sales are sales is king and queen? What do you, what do you what do you mean by that? What what are your perspectives on that? Um, why do people suck at sales? Uh, you know, from from your perspective, where where does sales come into play? You know, because for me, again, I'll say this every single day of the week. I I don't know of the other side of the spectrum. I only know about starting up with starting an idea, recruiting a team, getting that team. This is what I'm actually good at starting an idea, having an idea, building out the framework of the idea, having a team buy into the idea, having them all commit to significant hours of their life without any clear indication that they're going to get any money for the foreseeable future. (laughs) um and uh so yeah so sales very much is always in the front of my head in the beginning because i want to get those individuals money and the business money as fast as possible so what did you mean when you kind of broke that down 
Yeah. So when I say sales is king and queen, the reason why, again, it goes into a lot of these myths of starting a business, like which fooled me is like, just get a bunch of users or just get a bunch of, you know, free people on your platform or just build an awesome platform and they will come and just put a bunch of marketing and they'll come or whatever, all these like raise a bunch of money again, going back to that. But at the end of the day, like when you hear companies that say I'm pre-revenue, that means either they don't know how to sell or they don't have a product that people want to buy. And if those, either of those are the case, then you're screwed. And the fastest way to get real input on your business is to see, are people willing to open up their wallet and give you any amount of money? And then once they give you money, are they willing to keep paying that amount of money next month or next year or next billing cycle, whatever that is. But until I see money coming in for a startup, it's really difficult for me to believe in them. There's a million great, you know, great ideas out there or interesting products. But if you ain't making money, then there's a reason for it. And it's either shame on you as you don't need know, know how to sell, which is okay. You can learn how to sell or you can hire people that do know how to sell. Or two is you don't have a product that has product market fit um, because people are not willing to open up their product, open up their wallets for it. Hey, how do you, how do you think about partnerships at a strategic level to be able to increase? So I, I think about car- partnerships in a couple of different ways, you know, and I actually have a whole model that I follow around this. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, and, and I told you this when I first met you, I look at, I look at partnerships from like a connector model, like individuals that I like to gain respect and trust with to connect me with others. I, I think about like true strategic partners where they are doing something similar to what I'm doing, but in a different way. And I can kind of jump on their back if they will. And it brings more value to what they're doing. And obviously it brings value to what I'm doing. Um, I, there's obviously three or four other ways that I look at it. How do you look at, partnerships and collaborations when building a startup do you because i I see a lot of startups raising capital and then doing things at a very independent level do you have did you make any strategic partnerships with your business when you were were growing were how do you think through that yeah i was never successful with it i tried to focus on partnerships none of them worked to the area that to the level i thought they would work or i hope they would work at um I, i think partnerships can be great if there is alignment if there is value alignment, and if you're both rowing in the same direction, the challenge with partnerships, especially as a startup, like for me, if I'm, let's say I'm, I'm a startup A and startup B and we partner together and I'm startup A and I'm going in one direction and my head's down, I'm just trying to keep my head above water and figure out what the hell I'm doing. And now company B, that's a partner of mine, they're also expecting me to help them with what they're needing value for me for. And at the end of the day, if I see myself going in one direction, I'm going to focus more on my company versus the company that I'm in a partnership for. So I think it's a challenge when it's two young startups going together. But I think it's great if you're a young startup and you have a bigger company that you can then partner for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're more mature. Number two, they have more resources, most likely. And then number three, it's great to partner with companies that are similar to you and in alignment with you that are bigger than you because they're the perfect acquisition target for you. So if you can build a great relationship, you can be successful together, then a year down the road or five years down the road or whenever, if they see enough value in you, they might just gobble you up so that you can't add that value to one of their competitors. How do you think about connectors? How do you mean? How do you think about, or what value do you find 
with connectors. So what? I, so my definition of connector, I, I, I kind of, I would view you as one, right? I, you know, for me throughout my entire career, what I've done successfully is, uh, like you said, and I appreciate the compliment. I actually never said uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, one thing I think I do well is I, 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 I come at people from a very cold level, uh, very, very organically, very authentically, because um, it's, it's just in my bones. It's just who I am. I. I learned at a very young age in my career to have zero expectation from anyone. So if a relationship that I'm hoping to have does not pan out the way I want it to be, there will be like, I have zero anger towards that scenario. I have zero uh, resentment. I have zero, again, expectation. Um, And so for me, when I reach out, I try to find connectors, people that have connections to more PR, more attention, uh, potential sales that I, that I need to, to try to close, um, you know, potential other relationships that will give me some sort of, uh, you know, competence within my organization. Um, do you ever think about connectors in, at a, that intentional level when you were building your company? Did you have kind of like a, like a list of individuals that you know you needed to connect with for whether it was product, whether it was uh, more funding, whether it was marketing, whether it was exposure, whether it was information? Did you ever think through that? Absolutely. I think to your point, the first thing that came to my head was just give without the expectation of getting. If you do that, it allows you to truly build authentic relationships. And I think no matter what you do, if you're trying to build a company, if you're trying to do anything in life, you need relationships. You know, I think we all want to say like, we made it to the top by ourselves, but at the end of the day, and I've been guilty of saying that, like, you know, I just, I grind and I'm doing this and it's on me. And it's like bullshit. Like there's a million people that have maybe just one time or throughout conversations or they open the door to one thing or whatever that might be. So many people along the way have helped me in some type of way to get me to where I am today. And there's going to be many, many people that are going to help me to get to wherever I'm going. And that could be as simple as a conversation, an intro to somebody funding my business, whatever the hell that might be. And I think just in life, you want to build relationships with good people and without the expectation of needing to get something from them. If that happens, good will flow to you without you having to force it. But absolutely, I think connectors, relationships, just connecting with good people, even if it doesn't help you on this venture, maybe 20 years down the line, it comes back to help you. But if you just treat people well, it will always come back tenfold to you without you needing or expecting that to happen. So- Early in my career, are you familiar with Keith Ferrazzi? No. So early in my career, that's how I got obsessed with this whole connector kind of collaborative, you know, partnership model in my head. And, and I actually built a consultancy for two and a half years around it. Um, so that's what Keith does. Keith is really being into like building authentic relationships, finding those connectors for you. And there's whole models around this. Um, and I think it's fascinating. So do, do you feel there's any benefit to being very intentional about the connectors. Um, something I advise for a couple of startups that I work with and then what I've done in my career is, and I said this to you, like I was actually very, I'm very intentional. Like I come to the relationship knowing immediately what, where I want to take the relationship. But again, at a very authentic level, I'm very open to trying to do what I can do to bring value. And I'm very open to where the relationship goes. But do you think there should be an intentionality around it, whether it's, Again, whether like putting together like an air table of a list of people or like, do you think there's value from that level or do you think it should just be kind of a nonchalant organic aspect where 
you shouldn't bank on your business model being created through connectors and partnerships. How do you view that? No, absolutely. Everything should be, everything should be intentional. And the reason why is because like this person's also giving you their time. And if you're just reaching out to random people are like, Hey, you know, my name is Anthony and I just think you're an awesome person. Let's chat. And they're like, okay, well, great. But what the hell do you want to talk about? Like, I only have so much time in the day. If I talk to you for 30 minutes, that's 30 minutes. I could have spent talking to my mother or my sister or my daughter or my friend or my business partner or whatever the hell that might be. So it should be intentional. There should be, it should be a mutual relationship. It yeah. should be, Hey, I'm giving value. And the other person is giving value. It shouldn't just be like, I want to get value from you. So yes, absolutely. Like when I was in the campus recruiting world, we did a lot with uh, diversity inclusion. We did a lot with campus recruiting departments. Obviously we did a lot with talent acquisition from a whole. We did some work with chief people officers. Um, so like we were very intentional with who we're reaching out to and why we're re reaching out to them. And also how much time we're asking for and what exactly we're asking for. Hey, do you have time for a 15 minute conversation so I can learn a little more about how you think about X, Y, and Z? This is what I'm doing in one sentence. Would you be available on, you know, October 3rd at 3 p.m.? Thanks so much. Like everything I think should be intentional. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. That's good. Cause I, you know, I, I'll be very frank. I've actually gotten some pushback, not from people that I've intentionally reached out to, just at a macro level, just other startup advisors, just other entrepreneurs. Um, they, they, they actually don't understand why I, cause you know, again, I'm just super intentional about it. I, that, that connectors and partnerships and collaborations is the way that I actually build the companies. And, and so that's, uh, it's, it's nice to hear that you understand that mindset. I've actually got some sort of pushback. I don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, but that's another situation. Um, but before we, before we shift here to a couple personal questions that I, I, I kind of wanted to ask uh, at, at a macro level, you know, when you, when you stand back and look at the world of startups and entrepreneurship as a whole, what, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? Where do you, where, where, where do you see things going? What's something that, um, that, that you're looking into outside of the land development and things that you're doing? What, what's on top of mind for you? So top of mind for me, I, so to answer your first question, and then I'll jump into what's top of mind for me because it, it, it's actually related. So first and foremost, and I've said this kind of a few times now, I think the biggest thing is people are being tricked into thinking entrepreneurship and starting a business is something that it's not. I think that's been, I think, you know, through Shark Tank, it's become very sexy through that TV show, Silicon Valley. It's like all looked at in a different way. You're hearing about Uber or Facebook or some of these startups that have, that have came up out of nowhere and become billion dollar plus empires that have taken over the world. Like we as startup founders and young people or older people or whoever, we see entrepreneurship in a way that isn't hyper-realistic. And I have fallen in love and, and I bought into that. And that was my biggest issue. And what it took me five years of getting my ass kicked to truly learn. And now what I've been fascinated with is like all of these more micro opportunities and where I see a lot of the startup world going. And I think how Gen Z relates to that is you know, Gen Z is not a, a, and we did a lot of work with, uh, we were keynote speakers for a Gen Z. I'm, I'm actually doing a keynote in a few weeks about Gen Z um, through a lot of the data and surveys we did through my previous company. And Gen Z is very much, they're not an entrepreneurial generation like the millennials were, where they just wanted to start their dream job and build out the startup and make it a billion dollar company. They're much more practical and side job oriented. 
So like they'll do side hustles, right? Like they'll create a Shopify store, do eBay hustling or, you know, drive for Uber, that type of stuff to just be a scrappy hustler type of entrepreneur. And that's, that's a lot of the areas that I see moving forward is there's all these great opportunities. There's this book called How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital by a gentleman called Nathan Laka. I don't know if you've heard of him, but highly recommend uh, checking it out and checking out that book. I just finished reading it. One of my favorite books. It's very practical and it's very focused on, hey, there's all these different opportunities that exist where we can buy a product that's undervalued, build it up and have reoccurring profit coming from that business that we built, that we bought and we, we built up. Um, so a lot of where I'm looking right now, like I've been looking at buying businesses. There are these great websites that I like called Microacquire, Flippa, uh, and there's yeah. a few others too, um, where you have these businesses. A lot of times these are people that built like a side project where they're like engineers and they built this product eight months ago. They don't really know sales and marketing, but it's kind of a cool concept and they're willing to sell it for a thousand bucks or for 25 grand or whatever that amount is. And there's some good opportunities out there where you can buy businesses that might have a little bit of validation to it. And then through your sales and marketing background or whatever your skill set is, you can hopefully turn that business from, you know, $2,000 of MRR to $5,000 of MRR. Um, so that's a lot of where I've been interested lately is, hey, are there under undervalued assets in the startup world and in the tech world that I could take ownership of and then scale to a level that maybe the previous founder wasn't? And is there a great opportunity in that? So that, that's a lot of where my interest has been lately. That's really interesting. Yeah, I have been actually, uh, are you familiar with, you, you probably are, are you familiar with the podcast, My First Million? Yep. Uh, are you a fan? I am, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love, and I love the model actually of how they're just, now is just all brainstorming. And uh, uh, I know the guy, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy from Tiny Capital, I believe it's called. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember his name though. Yeah. He buys businesses now. He buys them a little bit larger than that range, mm -hmm. that 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 financial range. But yeah, he'll buy you know he'll buy a quarter of a million dollar business, a million dollar business, five million dollar business, and then flip it into a you know thirty million dollar business after a couple of years. And so I have been very fascinated by that. And I actually have a couple of people in my network that are that are doing similar things. Um, so let me shift this a bit. Uh, get a get a little selfish if I can here. Um, what uh how many how many team members did you have when you sold when we sold i mean we 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 left it to like it was pretty much my founder my partner and i is what we cut it to at our peak we had about 10 to 20 employees mixture of full-time and part-time got it was that intentional or what was the story behind that uh behind why 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 there wasn't as many why there wasn't a large number of people at the very end and then just throughout the process was it not a did you not have a need from like a intellectual like perspective like did you not need too many people in the situation to make make the thing go or what was the process in the in the mindset behind that yeah i mean process at the end was like we just cut everything just cut 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 we cut vendors we negotiated deals with vendors to bring the price down we you know, negotiated our Amex debt down quite a bit. Like we just cut everything because our whole goal was like, we want to get as much money back to our investors as we can. Um, and we want to just trim the fat. So that's why just everything as we knew that we were going to be selling the business is we cut everything that wasn't absolutely necessary. Um, in terms of when we if, were running, if I, if I yep. I'm sorry, if I can, how, how did you feel about that? Like, was that, 
Was that something that felt good? Was that just pure logic of business? Was that, were you advised to do that? What was the mindset around that? We had no choice and no, it felt awful. I mean, like when, when we made the decision that we had no choice, but to sell and it was from talking to probably one of our investors and advisors and a few other people that were like, Hey, you guys gave it your best shot, you know, go about finding someone that, that that's going to buy it and that can find value in it. So no, it was tough. I mean, at first it was definitely the hardest and it was a painful, probably six month stretch before we were officially acquired from when we decided to, to being like, okay, you know, money's in the bank and we, we don't own this company anymore. Um, but no, I mean, it was painful. Like we had to reach out to vendors who we really liked a lot and had to say, Hey, I'm sorry, but we can't pay you this five grand. You know, we want to give you something like what a thousand dollars work, you know, things like that. That's not fun. It sucks. You know, telling interns or people that are working full-time for you, Hey, sorry, but like, this, we don't have the money to pay anymore. And this is where we're going. It's not fun, but it's necessary. And that's part of the, the not so pretty, not, not such pretty part about starting a business. I, I, I don't mean to pride. I'm really fascinated by this. We're, and and I, I don't need you to disclose numbers. I'm sure you won't. Why was it always the goal of trying to get super massive and sell? Like what, like what was, I don't know what it was kicking you personally, mm -hmm. financially. Why, why, why couldn't you have guys just kind of kept it at that small level and just continue to build the, like run the business? I don't, what, what was the, mm -hmm. what was the need to sell? Yeah, it was like time to move on. So like a, a quick story is, and this was during the acquisition process mm -hmm. um, in the early days, we met with someone kind of in our space okay. and they were interested in acquiring us. And the founder is a very successful guy. I mean, he's, if I were to guess he's, you know, if money matters, it matters, whatever. He's probably got a few million bucks. Like he lives a good life. He's got a good solid team of probably 10, 15 people. He runs a really solid company. He's been doing it for, I don't know, 30 years, maybe like knows the space really well. It's been very successful. And I remember when we sat down in that meeting and when Pranam and I left, Pranam is my business partner. We were like, they've done a great job. He's ran a successful business, a business that anyone should be proud to run. But like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be the campus recruiting guy till I'm 50 years old. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all, but it just wasn't for me. I always thought when we started the company, I'm going to run this company till the day I die. Like I can't imagine doing anything else. I see. And then as time goes on, you're like, you know what? We did what we could with this. We gave it our best shot. Like we gave it a real shot for five years. We got our fucking asses kicked. We did everything we possibly could to make this thing work. But you know what? There's other things in life. I never thought that I'd be, a, you know, buying and subdividing and selling land and doing the stuff that I'm doing now. Never in a million years, I think I would be doing that. Um, but I'm so happy I did. And I'm so happy we made the decision to sell. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. That's interesting. Okay. Um, I, this is a little bit of a turnaround. You probably don't have anything prepared, but I've been trying to do this as of late for the next maybe six or seven minutes here. I want to try to see if I can get a tiny bit selfish here. Um, and that's another just odd thing just in life that I'll spit out here. Um, it's not a bad thing at times to be selfish, just at a macro level, just from mm -hmm. a personal development, like human being conversation here. Um, I know a lot of women do this on like, I, what does my girlfriend call it? She calls it like self-care Sundays or I don't know what they do. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, it is not a bad idea to uh, just take care of yourself selfishly ask questions 
do what's in your best interest at times. It is not a bad idea to do that at times when needed. Um, so I'm going to do that now. <laughs> Can I jump I in real quick before you jump into that? Please. On that exact note, one of the things I, I believe so firmly, I'm not saying everyone should just be you know selfish and say, fuck everybody else. But I'm a big believer in sometimes the most selfish things that we do is when we try to be the most unselfish. Mm-hmm. You know, like for, you know, I, I think I think about like my mother and like she's always like always wants to do things for everybody else, for everybody else, for everybody else. I'm like, mom, you got to take care of yourself first. Because at the end of the day, if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't fill up our own glass, we can't fill up anyone else's glass. If I don't feel good, if I don't have good energy, when I talk to my sister or my mother or my friend or my business partner or a potential client or whatever the hell it might be, I'm not going to be giving my best self. So I always encourage people like, try to be a little more selfish, be a little more selfish in the ways that you're bringing the best out of yourself. Because if you can do that, you're going to give so much more to everybody around you. So that's my quick runoff, but back to you. No, no, no. That was, that was, that was perfect. That was perfect. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, at a macro level, what is your understanding or perspective of what I'm trying to create here? I know it's been a while since we talked and I'll give you a deeper question to, to try to navigate the mind. Um, you know, we, we have a, a number of things that we're trying to do here. There's an advisory model that we're creating that, you know, think of it like a bat phone, if you will. You know, I believe throughout the process of building a company, once you start getting five employees, 10 employees, and then we're talking whether they're interns, volunteers, you're paying them very minimal dollars, maybe you have two or three full-time people. And then there's, you know, there's an incubator model that we're creating for two week stretches of time. We want to kind of run employees through what it, employees run companies through what it looks like to really build out a people operational unit if you will through the employee experience lens looking into a lot of different dynamics and then inevitably leading all the way up until we want to work with the company 60 70 80 people 100 people 200 people that really needs to build this out and kind of bring on that first person to steward that effort that we now have designed for them from a priority standpoint in your head, and I already know the bad to this to this answer that you may give. I already know the priority for most companies is on the lower end. But from the priority of your personal perspective, as you're growing a team of 10 people to 15 people to 25 people, how do you think about what I'm building and what we're talking about um, just at a macro level? Like, are there any thoughts you have, any importance that you think there is around it. And, and again, fuck this podcast. Don't, don't feel obligated to give me any great answers or any, you know, empathetic feedback just to make me feel better. Like, give me, give me your true reactions. So the way I see you guys and what you're building is like the outsourced chief people officer, correct? To a certain degree. Um, you know, for, for us, for us, we want to be, we want to bring in a team of five people to replicate and create the framework, the model, the methodologies that inevitably we want to keep in place. So we want to build it. We want to teach you it. We want to lock it in place and then inevitably help you go and find that very first per people that, that chief people officer to plug them into that framework. Um, so yes, in, to a certain degree, my answer is yes. 
so the way I, I see what you're doing and the way I see the value of it is like, so I, I don't, for my startup, we were so small um, and we had some people that were doing some of that stuff for free, some of that stuff, just some of that stuff. So it wasn't valuable for us at our size. I could see it starting to be valuable at like the 50 employee to 100 employee range, although I've never actually personally been there, but I could see that is probably where it starts to get valuable. Um, maybe even a little bit before 50 employees. But the value I would see is if you have a bench of chief people officers that you're also training. So you have, let's say, 50 chief people officers that apply to be a part of your boot camp and be trained how to become a great chief people officer. And then you have clients that you're working with that you say, hey, here's our process. We have a bench of great chief people officers. Here's like their different backgrounds, their different skill sets, blah, blah, blah. What we're going to do is we're going to come in for the first six months and we're going to overview your systems. We're going to help create new systems, create new processes and create the whole flow that goes into having a successful chief people officer program that would be created. And then what we're going to do is we're going to hand deliver a list of, you know, five to 10 chief people officers that could execute on this as you start to scale. Because if you did that, then you're also acting as a recruiter but you're also trained that chief people officer and you're also putting in the processes and the framework that that chief people officer will then use to run their organization. So that that's where I would see it as valuable. That's really interesting. Everything you said is what we're doing outside of the fact that along the way of the six to nine months that we're there or the however long it's going to be, it's really, it's, it's actually a white glove approach a long period of time everything you said we're doing outside of the fact that along the way, what you're saying is there should be a recruiting element of finding people that would be on that bench, if you will, that are, that are waiting and prepared to jump into those roles and opportunities from a a recruiting lens. Yeah. Well, the reason why is at least for the way I see it is Mm -hmm. let's say you put all this great process and framework in and then they hire, you know, yeah. Mary Smith and Mary Smith has her own process and framework that she wants to implement. And it's like all that work you guys just did is totally negated versus if you already have a bench where Mary Smith has been trained on, Hey, here's our framework. Here's our best practices. Here's how this works. Here's what we're doing. You put her in and then there's no friction. Um, So that, that's why I see that as so important. How do you think about, how do you think about decision-making models and transparency to employees and, processes around allowing employees to impact your decision-making frameworks and models and, um, you know, infusing employees' perspectives and things of that nature into the flow of the organization. Do you have any thoughts around that? Because that's, you know, a lot of people get it confused of what I actually do. What we actually do is when we say operationalize employee experience, we're actually looking in the way of the company. We actually are redesigning the way the company works to be more empathetic and to the employee so that the, the employee can actually produce better results. When, when I say all of that to you, have you personally thought through those things when you had your small team? Do you have, now that you're much older in life, do you have a new outlook on how you would go about it if you were to start that second company? What, what, what goes in your mind as you think about whether it's decision-making models, employee one-on-ones, employees input, internal communications. Um, how do you think about that as it pertains to changing the way that you actually conduct the day-to-day operations from a flow perspective of the company to bring more value to the bottom line? So 
Ray Dalio is much, much, much smarter than me. And I could have added a lot more muches in there too. Um, and Ray, I'm sure you've read or know of Principles mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the most famous books, business books right now. And if Ray Dalio believes in the, the radical transparency and input from his employees, um, then I would be pretty silly not to also believe that until I see things differently. Um, where like the interesting thing that I see around transparency with employees, like if I were to do it all over again, where I would have changed most is especially in a small team, it's kind of tough to get tons of feedback. You can get feedback, but sometimes people don't feel quite as comfortable because they're so close with you. They might not give you the truest of feedback. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't try to get it. I think you should. Um, but it, that might not be the most effective in a super small organization. Um, and I think sometimes at the end of the day, people just want to be told what to do when they do it. You know, there's some people that are, uh, you know, more entrepreneurial, more creative. And there's some people that like want to just have a process given to them and they just execute on it. hundred um, percent. So I think that that is a key thing that some people don't always take into account. But like where I would do differently is like I would be more radical with showing everybody the exact numbers, because I think that's also helpful from a business standpoint. It might scare some people but like showing people, hey, you know, we raised, let's say, one hundred thousand dollars and here's what the burn rate is. We're losing $3,000 a month or we're losing $20,000 a month. So because of that, this is why it's so important for us to not only get sales, but for us to be conscious about how we're spending money. So I would make sure that everybody was more aware of actually how the money works in an organization. Because I think if more people knew about that, they would take sales more seriously and they would take costs more seriously as well. It's interesting you say that there's a best practice that we all have within my company, my collective um, there's actually not a fancy name for that, that best practice or that framework, but essentially it's what you said, right? It's kind of, it's kind of flipping, it's, it's kind of flipping the empathy, right? A lot of people, when they hear me say E1B2 employees first, business second, they tend to think that I'm always going to side and break my back to do anything to make the employee feel comfortable and safe. And that's actually not the case. I actually want to try to help leaders be more transparent to employees so that employees actually understand the realities of what's Mm -hmm. happening in the minds of the founders so they can be more empathetic and they can be more structured and more uh you know they can cater to the leader's reality as well because the leaders are going through stress the leaders are going through anxiety the leaders are going through moments and changes as well so it's not just you employee that's having to go through change management situations it's also the executive as well And so I think there's a level of accountability that can happen on both sides of the spectrum. Um, How do you, I guess my last question around this all is, you know, how do you see, you know, what would you advise me personally? How do you see this all working? You know, as I told you before, I build companies through, um, there's only one tactic that we're going to utilize to go directly to startup founders. Everything else is through collaborations and partnerships. We want, we're building partnerships. Right now, we're in talks with venture capital. We're in talks with angel investors. We're in talks with individuals like yourself that are connectors. We're in talks with uh, other workshops that, are, that, that startup founders and such are, are, are getting value from. We have about nine different categories of partnerships and collaborations. How would you, what, what advice would you give me to not think through those partnerships, but execute it and deliver it and actually get those things done. What can I hear from you, learn from you right now to make what I'm building more empathetic and more practical 
to an angel investor or to a venture capital firm to say, you know what? We like what you guys are doing. We, we trust what you guys are building. Yes, I will go into my network and make a recommendation, a strong recommendation to get you inside of a conversation, get you in the door. And in some cases, depending on the venture capital firm, we've had a couple firms and a couple incubators say that there's certain, whether it's the advisory service that we have or the or the uh, the incubator model that we have, where they'll actually comp certain things that we're doing because they believe in it so much that they think that their startup founders and leaders need to go through what we're talking about. What advice would you give me throughout this process? So from the investment route, my advice would be to just go to learn and say you're not looking for money. It would say, hey, here's what I'm building. We're not looking to raise right now, but could I, you know, could I have a 30 minute conversation or can I meet you for coffee or oh, 15 oh, minutes? What? Let me let me correct you. No, we're this 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 business model. We, no, we're not raising money. We're going to these venture capital firms because oh, to get their startups on board to get access to their startups. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, my thing is, I wouldn't even go directly to the venture capitalists. If I were you, my recommendation would be one thing: find one company to buy your product. And I know that's what you're doing, but I, the reason why I say stay away from the venture capitalists and go directly to the, the startup is you'll learn from them the real and the raw. If you go to a VC, like they have an idea of what the startup's going through, but they're not in the day to day. If you go to a CEO or a CFO of a 40, 50 person customer, you can see, is this actually a need? Do they actually want this? How much would they actually pay for it? And my only focus would be, how do I set up as many meetings as possible with as many different startups so I can, number one, learn if this is a real solution that they want. And then number two, get them to sign on the dotted line where they're going to pay me for the service. Because until you do that, you know, you, you have a really tough time, in my opinion, of finding any VC or any angel to do the work for you. Like I, I would just go directly to the people that you'll be selling to. So you don't think it's a good use of time to try to go through the VC to get an to get them to trust and buy into what we're creating to get an introduction? No, it's because it's almost like, you know, a lot of times it's like if you're if you're, it's almost like if your mom or your dad or your teacher tells you that you should do something, it's like okay, like I'll do it, but am I really going to do it? Like you want to reach out to the startup founder and like get them excited about this and have them have a conversation with you, make it feel like this is their idea. I would go directly to them and they're the people that are going to give you the most honest answer. VCs, either not going to answer you. They'll tell you they'll do it and they really won't. Um, or they might do it, but they're not going to be able to pitch your business as well as you can pitch it and have the passion that you have. Like I would just focus on how do I get what you're probably already doing? How do I get 20 podcasts lined up with startup founders with 40 to hundred employees? Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you already know I'm doing that, but yeah, I'm just saying, yep, just because I'm that's interesting. I'm thinking, okay, you know, but like I, I just would go directly to them because at the end of the day, you want to get the answers that you need to find, and the only answers that you're going to get are from the CEOs or CFOs of the exact companies that you're trying to sell into. And if they're not a fifth word you're looking for, that's okay. Maybe it's you know, companies with a thousand employees, or maybe it's companies with seven employees, but to get the answers, I would just go directly to the customer. That's fair. That's fair. Is there uh, I guess we'll wrap this up this way. Is there anything that you're working on right now uh, that you want to share? Um, you know, again, you know, the, the, the listenership is growing. So is there anything that you want to plug anything that you, that you uh, kind of want to talk about anything that is um, anything that is interesting to you? 
anything that um that you just want to elaborate on no i mean the biggest thing i would just say is like don't feel stuck in wherever you are and the one thing i've learned is going from running a tech startup to being out in the woods buying and selling land to you know looking to buy these small micro acquire type of startups like just don't be don't feel like you're stuck where you are and just always be willing to try new things and to, to learn new things. So that's number one. Um, and number two, in, start, in, in terms of staying in touch, if anyone wants to stay connected, uh, you can just follow me on Instagram. That's typically where I do most of my talking. It's at, at Adam I Rosen. And um, if anyone has any small startups that you're either looking to sell or uh, have products you're looking to sell or you're looking for investors or anything, reach out and, and we can talk and see if there's a fit. I appreciate this so much, Adam. It was it was a great conversation. No, I appreciate the time, Anthony. We'll we'll absolutely stay in touch, and uh, it's good chatting with you, man. All right, thanks a lot. We'll talk soon. All right, bye bye. Bye.